We continue through our study of 1 John in chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. This week in the body of Christ, I received an email and a text. I received an email from a friend who just said, uh, this is what's going on in my life. This is the good news. This is the bad news. Yeah, you talk a lot about family, and sometimes I went, ah, maybe. But now I get it. I need my Christian family, and I love it. I received a text from another brother who was just hurting, just going, um, I need some more from my family. I need some more prayer. I need some more body life. I just need to know someone cares for me. And so in this church, this is an easy sermon for me to preach because you are a loving church. It's probably one of the greatest gifts that you have. If you talk about the strengths that God has worked through you as a congregation, a family, you really do care. And that being said, there are always some spots we miss, right? And so we come into a sermon like this today not beating ourselves up. We come in saying, thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. And then maybe show us our blind spots because we love loving you and loving our neighbors and we want to figure out how best to practice it even going forward. Because as good as God has done, he's not finished yet and we can improve in loving our neighbors. John understands the fraternity, the brotherhood, the family of Jesus or the church. John Heard about this guy, Jesus. John met this guy, Jesus. John was invited to come in and enjoy the holy huddle. Oh, what power is in this family. I mean, they could actually be with Jesus, and he could walk up to someone like a Mitchell Morton, and he could just kind of touch him in bed, wink, walk away, and all of a sudden the cancer would be gone, and he would stand and be whole for the rest of his life. John saw that power and said, that's my family. He heard this wisdom, this teaching from Jesus, and it made sense. This is good news. This is how I should live my life. This makes sense of my world. He also saw grace, for he knew he didn't measure up to those words, but Jesus was the most compassionate guy he had ever met towards those who were sinners. And he knew about the future in this family. Yeah, there are good days and there are bad days, but... uh, Ultimately, the final chapter is a glorious day. I want to be with that family. And what ended up happening was he was infatuated by the Holy Spirit. He was betrothed by Jesus Christ. He was adopted by the Father, and he found himself in this holy huddle that was way more than just 12 men. It included fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers, and even the people that he got to minister to, he loved calling them what? Little children, my beloved. John understood family life, but he also understood fluidity. That there are some in the household who are really not in the family. And so John has been given tests all the way through. There are five of them. Those tests are the confessional test. Do you confess your sins? If you pretend you don't have sin, you're not in this household. 
the doctrinal test. Do you know who Jesus Christ is? That he is God who has existed from all time, that he came to earth, that he added a real human body and a real human nature, that he was both God and God's son, and that through him eternal life is offered to all who believe in his accomplished work. Another test, the perseverance test. There are some who stick because they're really in, but there's some who just temporarily stick, but then they fall away. They leave. And they ultimately prove they're not of us because they didn't stay with us. There's the moral test. Do you practice the law? Do you practice the commandments? Do you practice the righteousness we learned last week that is yours in Christ? And then the love test. Do you show love to your brothers? Now, he's hit all of these before, and he'll hit all of them again. He, it's not a real clearly focused letter where he hits one point, then a next. It's just like spirals where he keeps coming back around. If you've read the book of Judges, you see those themes over and over again. Or the book of Revelation, you keep seeing these themes. Well, that's what's going on in this letter. John's already written about this, but he's going to write out the relational test again. And that's what we find in verses 11 through 24. And I've divided it up into four sections. Here's the first. 1 John 3.11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. I tell you, church, you need to know the message. And this is nothing new. This is an old message. It's been going on since the beginning of time. When Israel was gathered on Sinai and God gave him his law, this was the message that was found there in the law. This is the message that Jesus preached throughout his ministry. And these people, when they came to know Christ, this is one of the first messages they heard as well. What is that message? Yes, you're to have love for enemies. Yes, you're to have love for your neighbors and your friends and your natural family. But Jesus Christ prayed in John 17, and he spoke of this over and over again. You are supposed to have a special love for this, your church family. And how sweet it is when your natural family is part of your church family. But there can come a time when your church family becomes more near and dear to you and they will be more eternal to you than your natural family because of who Christ is and your unity in Christ. And so as we abide with Christ, we're supposed to abide with each other. That's how the book begins, fellowshipping with God and fellowship with one another. What does this look like? Being with one another, praying, learning together, serving, confessing our sins one to another, forgiving each other, overlooking a fault, reclaiming lost brothers, gathering together at the Lord's table, washing one another's feet, symbolically, maybe literally if you want to, and much more as you're going to see. This is the message from the beginning. This is the big idea. This is the commandment. This is one of the five tests he presents. If you really have the family DNA, this is what we're to do. Do you know the message? Then he's going to give some illustrations, but he starts with a negative illustration. Let me tell you what family life does not look like. John would say, do not be devilish. Let's keep reading in verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did Cain murder Abel? 
because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Do not be like Cain and do not be like the world. Let's talk about Cain first. What we have are two brothers who have the same parents, Adam and Eve. We have two brothers who have the same condition. They're sinners before God. We have two brothers who are receiving mercy and grace from God. Though they are sinners, totally depraved, they're still living. Why? Because God has said, I'm going to show you how I show my gospel to people. Those two brothers had been instructed by God. They had been probably instructed by God through Adam and Eve. There was a certain way they were supposed to worship. God said, I am the one who's going to supply the lamb. I'm going to supply the blood. I'm going to supply the son. And I want you to worship me in these various ceremonies. And this is way before Moses. And I'm going to tell you how you're going to do it. And if you obey, that's that's good worship. If you disobey, that's unregulated worship. That's uh, disallowed. That's not good. Both brothers, sinful, graced, worshiping. Notice this. Cain is a religious brother. He's in and around the household, and he looks like everyone else going through his rituals of worship. But ultimately... Cain was proven by his father, his parentage. It says here in the text that he's motivated by his spiritual father. He's actually of the evil one. And this is interesting. I want you to notice that his bad deeds flow from his parentage, not his identity flow from his bad deeds. Because he is bad, he does bad. Because he is satanic or luciferian, he does those things which Lucifer does. Because he is of the bad seed, he does those sins. It's not that he did something which made him bad. He's born this way. Cain is of the evil one, and he loved himself. Oh, maybe he had some love for Abel, maybe some love for Adam and Eve, and maybe some love for God. But when it all came down to that which was supreme, there's no question. He is willing to murder his brother. He is willing to lie and hurt his mother and father who love the brother dearly. He could care less about God who has made Abel in his own image. Cain loves himself. And because Cain is of the evil one and because Cain has these horrible affections within which drive him, he commits evil thoughts first, well, evil deeds. He sacrifices wrongly. Then he has evil thoughts. He notices that God accepts Abel's sacrifice. God doesn't accept my sacrifice. I don't like that. He's proud. He's jealous. He's envious. I'd jerk a knot in God if I could grab him, but I can't. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm taking it out on Abel. So wrong parentage led to wrong affections, which led to wrong deeds, which led to a wrong heart, which leads to even more wrong deeds, where he proves his parentage by, it says that Satan is a destroyer. This is exactly who Cain becomes. He is a murderer, a hater. 
this is what you're not to be like. That's not how we're going to live life. Don't be like Cain. Don't be all in the family, around the family, looking like you're worshiping like the family, singing your little songs with the family, giving your little money to the family, consumed with self-love, consumed with sinful thoughts, consumed with deeds that either harm your brother or don't help your brother, as you're going to see, for murder is wrong and hatred is wrong, and apathy is wrong. You're going to see this. No, 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 no. That's not you people. Don't be like Cain. And don't be like the world either. The world has always hated the church. Cain hated Abel. The world hates the church. We see Satan going at the church from the beginning. Cain going after Abel. Abram's neighbors hated him. Egypt hated Israel. The Canaanites hated the Jewish nation. Assyria, Babylon, and Rome came at the church. Even the Jewish people in the first century, absolutely, though they were Jewish, hated Christ the King and His kingdom, the church. They hated Him. And so it's been forever and ever. So don't be like Cain. Don't be like the world. And don't be surprised that the world hates you. That is not where we're going to be such people, even if you worship like Cain, even if you're around the family like non-Messianic Jews, if you do not have Christ, you do not have love for one another, the Spirit doesn't abide in you, eternal life doesn't abide in you, and notice this, it says, you have not passed out of death into life. Now, that's interesting because scientifically everything that's living is going from life to death. And scripturally, God says that's exactly what goes on with us, that we are just dead in our trespasses and sins. But salvifically, this is what happens to us. We don't go from being alive to being dead. We are those who go from being dead to being alive. That's who we are. So, do you know the message? Do not be devilish. Thirdly, therefore be what you are and do what you ought. Let's read verse 16 through 18. Notice that he continues to use the we. By this, we know love. What's the good example? That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The Father has looked down upon you and he has shown you agape love. While you were dead in your trespasses and sins and while you were at enmity with him, he decided, I'm going to show pity and compassion and I'm going to send my son. The son has looked upon you with agape love and he has come to rescue you from your sins and he sent his spirit to finish the job. The spirit has looked upon you with love and has seen your free will and has seen how you freely will to say no to him all the time and he has come in and he has done heart surgery on you. 
and he has wooed you and enticed you and he has motivated your will to freely choose him. That's really cool how the God of ultimate free will loves to go at our depraved free wills and mold them so that we freely and willingly want to call upon him. That's what we believe as Calvinists, as Reformed Christians, that sure you have a will that is not a robot, but so does God. And who has the most free will? It's the sovereign God. And the Spirit has loved you by regenerating you. He has poured love upon you. The Bible says He pours love in you. The Bible says He fruits you with this love. This is incredible. Love is the evidence of regeneration, betrothal, adoption, and being filled. Uh, Really, you want to know if you've been born again? Do you love your brothers? Do you want to know if you've been betrothed to Christ? Does he live in you and do you live in him and do you share the same traits? It's easy. Do you love your brothers? How about, have you been adopted? Is God really your father? Do you have the trait of the family? Does the Holy Spirit dwell within? Yes, this is what happens. This is just who you are. He is so much stronger than our sin nature. He is going to win the day through and through. And so he takes people that are in love with the world, in love with the flesh, have the pride of life, people who love themselves, and he has this incredible ability, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, to come and do his work, and he will win. And in glory, there will only be sweet harmony in the family of God, because God is that powerful. That's who you really are. And agape love here is what we ought to do. Now, I do have friends who do not believe that we have to keep the commandments anymore. I mean, they believe that those are all gone, they're all done, that all we do now is just live out who we are and the the, the law has nothing to say to us anymore. We don't have that responsibility, that obligation, that duty. I disagree with my friends. I mean, I see right here in 1 John very clearly as he's writing to whom? Beloved little children. That in verse 7, this is the commandment. In verse 11, this is the message. In verse 11, this is what we ought to do. In verse, uh, what we should do. In verse 16, this is what we ought to do. For in verse 22, this is what pleases him. This is what we get to do. This is our privilege. If you want to know how to worship, we love. So this is who we are, but this is what we ought to do. And he gives an example. I'm going to choose to put it in the positive instead of the negative, which is what I think he's probably doing. The idea of going, if you happen to see a Horizon Church member who has goods, any of you have some goods? Yeah, you do. The Lord has been so gracious to us. He's provided money, shelter, food, pleasure, recreation, toys. Man, he has been good to us. Suppose a brother has goods and sees a need. Any needs in the church? Yeah, there's lots of needs in the church. Oh, there's physical needs in the church where someone needs something taken out of their attic. They can't do it anymore because of their shoulder, or their back, or their knees. 
There's relational needs as someone is caring for a loved one, but man, who's caring for the caregiver? Oh, there are spiritual needs when someone just is struggling with sin. Received a sweet phone call from someone this week on the phone just saying, you told me to call if I needed to talk, and it's that time. Great conversation. Oh, man, there are emotional needs as people here are lonely. They really are. Some are struggling with depression and anxiety. Financial needs. People willing to go work, but they can't find work. Or, man, they have slaved at building their company, but it's falling to pieces right now. People with all kinds of needs. Can you imagine a horizon person? who has the Father's love, the Son's love, the Spirit's love on the inside, that's who they are, and they have all of these goods that the Lord has given to them, and they see a brother or a sister in need, and they declare their love maybe in word. They declare their love in talk. They sing, oh, how I love Jesus, and then they sing, how sweet is the family of God. I'm so glad to be part of that family of God, those old hymns. And, oh, they talk a big game. We love our church. It's the happiest, nicest people you've ever met in their life. So you have these goods. You find needs. You talk a big talk about love. But ultimately, what do you end up doing? Coming across a need of a brother or sister in Christ, one who shares the same Holy Spirit with you, and you look at that person and your heart is closed, Maybe your eyes close, maybe your head turns, your hands remain clenched, and you don't help that kind of person, and you're going to say, you love the brothers? No way. That's not you people. That really isn't. Now, I know there are times in which we do that, and we're going to confess those, and I know that there are temptations to do that because we still love ourselves, don't we? But over and over, as I look at this church, I see what Christ is doing, and it's really good news. It's awesome to see that you are interested way more in loving each other and getting involved in each other's lives and starting new ministries and engaging in small groups and praying and gathering for special prayer meetings because you love one another. That's what I see here. That's really, really good news. Don't be like Cain. Don't be like the world. And don't be like that part of you sometimes that sees a need and closes his eyes. Can that be the love of God? Nah, that's not it. But that's not you. Be who you are and do what you ought. Finally, verses 19 through 24. But what happens when your heart bothers you? Now this is... This is horrible. My studies this week, I mean, I don't know what I'm supposed to do when you have Augustine on one side and Calvin on another. John MacArthur on one side and Sproul on another. John Stott on one side and Sinclair Ferguson on another. I mean, and I'm supposed to stand up here and say, I'm going to tell you which of those men are wrong. I got this. So therefore, when you come to a passage of Scripture that has two different interpretations, the best thing to do is to make sure to preach it in a way that it doesn't contradict something else in the Bible that's really clear. That way, the worst that I can do is preach a really good message from the wrong text. But I haven't preached a wrong message 
from a text. And so what happens? By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. So all of us have learned about the commandment. Then we've been reminded of Christ's example. He lays down His life for the brothers. We've been reminded of our Christian ought. So we're to be like Jesus. We're not to be like Cain. Cain was of the evil one. Jesus was of the holy one. Cain was involved in self-love. Jesus was involved in brother love. Cain was involved in brother sacrifice. Jesus was involved in what? Self-sacrifice. And now we look at our life and we say, are we like that? Well, judicially, that's who you are. I just told you that's who you are. But practically, there's not a righteous person who keeps God's law day in, day out, with fail, and loves others more than he loves himself in this room. You can't hold that view according to Scripture. If you do, you're denying the truth. The truth is not in you. You're fallacious. You're wrong. The Bible has this idea that you have to confess your sins to your brothers. Why? Because you commit sins against your brothers. So you may think you're all right, but you harm us. You hurt us. You sin against us. And you need to confess your sins when you do so. So there are people in this room who are rightly sitting there and their hearts are condemning them. But there are also people in this room who are sitting there and your hearts should not condemn you. So now we got to figure out what does this mean that your heart is condemning you? A big deal is made. Is this factual or fictional? Are we dealing with brothers whose hearts are bothering them but it shouldn't be because Jesus has saved them? Or is it dealing with brothers who, uh, whose hearts should be bothering them because they don't keep the one big commandment perfectly? Well, I would say, I don't know. I've been studying all week. I can give you the arguments and give you the books. I got more reading than you want to do. But this is what I know. The gospel solves both problems. So this is why I say don't forget the gospel. And I'm going to teach it like this. Here we go. There are people who know the commandment, know Christ's model, know what they ought. They know they should walk in truth. They know they should love in deed and in truth. This is what 1 John's been saying. They know that they should live up to being the seed of God, that they should show forth the fruit of the Holy Spirit. They know they should have less love for the flesh, less love for the world, and less love for themselves, more love for Christ, and they know that they should be showing that love to their brothers and sisters. But their hearts condemn them. And they lack 
assurance. And the Westminster Confession of Faith makes it very, very clear that assurance has a both an objective part where our assurance is in Christ, but it has a subjective experiential part, and it comes and goes. So if you're sitting here and you have greater assurance some days and lesser assurance felt in your hearts, then you're just the person the Westminster Confession is describing. So you who are lacking assurance or need reassurance or increased assurance because you look now at the law, you look at God's command, you look at his standard, and you know that's not me all the time. That's not me even with my spouse, my best friend. That's not me with my children. That's not me with these people. What are you supposed to do when you understand God's law, His example, His standard? You're not to pretend you're sinless. You are to confess your sins. And He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is what we do. And what happens here is God proves greater than our heart. Now, those who want to make this only a warning passage, they would say, yeah, your heart tells you you're bad, but God tells you you're really bad. Well, that could be true, for your heart is deceitful, and your heart can tell you that you're a much better person than you are, and God knows everything. God knows you're not as sharp in His eyes as you think you are in your eyes by your own merit and conduct. And so, therefore, God knows better. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. This is John writing to people who love one another, who want to love one another. They're brothers, but their hearts are bothering them. He's writing to you. And what does he say? Yes, your heart knows some things, but God knows everything. And your heart knows that you sin, and your God knows that you sin more than you know that you sin. And your heart knows that sin is shameful. And God knows really how shameful sin is. But God is the one who goes to the diseased heart and he gives it gospel CPR. He breathes life into it. And God out-preaches your own heart. God is the one who has everything to say that before the throne of God above, you have a strong and perfect plea, and that though you do sin with your deeds of omission or commission and with your heart, God knows everything. And this is how you can reassure your hearts in two ways. Look at your love and say, hey, I see what Christ is doing. That gives confidence. I see sometimes as I am more and more saying no to myself and yes to my brother. Rejoice. That's not normal. That's, that's not like... That's not like Cain. It's like Jesus. And yet, when you look at your deeds and your love and you see, ah, if you only knew my heart. Because even sometimes when I do good deeds and people say how loving, I'm doing it to make myself look good. God is even louder than your heart. He knows everything. Yes, He knows your sin, but He knows your Savior. He is your Savior, and He knows what He's done for you and what He will keep doing for you. And what happens now, I think the text shifts here in verse 21. Isn't this good news, beloved? When you finally deal with that heart that condemns you, and now you have a heart that doesn't condemn you, what ends up happening? Freedom in prayer. Now you are bold. You run before the Father. 
You get to go in like Jesus would before the Father because you're clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And though you be sinful, sinning, a sinner, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, always needing to confess your sins and get fresh cleansing, not because his blood wasn't efficacious the first time, but this is what he does. He just keeps re-cleansing us and re-cleansing us even though we never are outside of his care once we're in Christ. We get to now with confidence run before the throne of God. That's where we pray. That's where we see answers to our prayer. What else ends up happening? As we pray and run before his throne with confidence, we start looking at his commandments, plural, and we keep them, all of them, whatever they are. We try. And we really enjoy focusing on the one commandment, singular, in two parts. The one commandment, if you want to put the whole Bible and what your responsibilities or your oughts or your privileges or whatever you want to call that that you do in worship that pleases him, it is basically you love God, how? By believing in God and accepting his gospel and by loving your brothers. That's just what we do. We keep going back to the gospel and then back to the brothers. Back to the gospel, back to the brothers. That's what we do. We are those who abide in him. He abides in us. We are those who really have been given, past tense, the Holy Spirit. You get it when you get saved. You have the Holy Spirit in us. You abide in him. He abides in you. How do you know? Because you don't look like Cain. You don't look like the world. You don't look like those religious people who love just in talk. Man, do you keep believing in God. I need the gospel. Calm my heart. Talk to my heart. Out-talk my heart. Whether it be fictional or factual. And we go after our brothers. So I have one more slide. How do we apply this? What does this look like? Here we go. Let's practice. If you know me, if I've gotten to talk with you some, I really do like to divide up thinking between three words, law, gospel, worship. And that's basically what I do here. What says the law? The law says, thus says the Lord. There are many commandments. There are the Ten Commandments. There are the Two Commandments. There's the big One Commandment. And I'm not playing games, the law says. This is the voice of God. And to be holy, you must do this all the time. You must want to do this. You must never want to do the opposite from the inside out. This is what the law says. To be holy, you must love God and love your neighbors perfectly. What says our head and heart? If it's informed by the Spirit, this is what it says. You've partially kept some of the laws. You've truly kept none of the laws. Every day you break the biggest of the laws. And you know that you still have to confess your sins of loving the world, the flesh. And loving yourself too much. But what says God and the gospel? No matter how deep your brother sacrifice and self-love have shown themselves. Whether you be Moses 
David, Nebuchadnezzar, Paul, or the Corinthian saints. Whether you be one who even killed the Son of God, that there is pardon for you. That there is no more condemnation. So even if your hearts condemn you, there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. That you can boldly approach the throne of God. So what does the confessing child say? He says what's found in 1 John 1, 9. I confess my sin. I do not deny my sin because I want to be cleansed of all unrighteousness. Or he prays with the psalmist in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what you do. You just sit here and you go before the Lord and you say, Lord, I would like to think like you about my affections, my thoughts, my deeds, and my words. Search me, know me, see if there's anything grievous in me. And then you confess them. You talk to him about it. You take your troubled heart to the source of the gospel. What then says the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit says, I got you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Let's believe the gospel. Let's treat our heart first. Let's, let's focus upon the gospel with our mind. Let's let us affect our hearts. And then let's practice. That's how it works. You're transformed by your mind. That then changes your affections, which then changes your actions. That's why you're able to be in Romans 12 language now a living sacrifice, transformed by the mind with different affections, living it out. And so now we practice. And yes, we can still say words and talk of love. But what else do we get to do? We get to now just live out who we are and what we ought. We get to give our hearts. That means that we look around and we look for bias that we have in our head. And you do. I do. And we go ahead and say, let's start there, Lord. I should not think myself better than that guy, that girl, that family, them people. We share our hearts. We share our money. We give it together here in joint causes to help one another, but then we look for needs and love spending it on other people. Our skills. You come over to the pastor's house and help him put a a sprinkler together because he doesn't know how to dig the hole properly and change the sprinkler. We, we find ways to serve. We give our time. We open our houses and let people come and sit around our table. We give of our prayers. We use our spiritual gifts for each other. We exhort and encourage one another with wisdom and sometimes having to show tough love. We comfort one another with the gospel. We tell our own story and our own sins so that people can see how Christ is working in us. Bottom line, we sacrifice. That's what the Holy Spirit says. Let's believe, and now let's show how much we've been graced by God by being gracious and give to people mercy and grace and love they don't deserve. But they're our brothers. They're our sisters. So what will the family then say? What will be said by the family? Had another dinner at our house this week on Friday night, and I love this phrase. I found my people. That's what the family's going to say. 
the family's going to say, well, I've seen religion. I've seen morality. I've seen church. But there's just something different about these people. They learn my name. They invest in my life. And finally, I, I kind of, at this point, I found my, my people. That was a really neat statement. That's what your brothers and sisters will say. What will be said by the father? The father will say, go, son. And he's not first talking to you. He's talking to Jesus. Go, son. Send your spirit, son. And then he's going to look, and he's going to look at us, and he's going to say, yep, I see what Jesus Christ is doing. I see that poem. I see that work. I see that handiwork. What a master craftsman he is. Those people down there are looking more and more and more like my son. Man, we're doing good work. That's so pleasing to me. And then what's the world going to say? Jesus has talked of this before, and in John 13 he said this, By this the world will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. The world's going to see this, and they're going to know this is a deeper fraternal affection than anything they've ever seen in life. And some of them are going to mock and hate and kill. But some are going to say, let me in. Where can I find that kind of fellowship? May God help us. This church really doesn't have the 80-20 rule going on in regards to love. There are some areas in which it does. You people, my friends, you love one another well. You can do better. Uh, just let's go to the Lord. Let's confess our sins. Let's ask for renewed affection, transformed minds, clear hearts. Then let's do what we want. And let's start showing love to each other more and more than we do now. Greater the benefits. As the Father looks down and says, I like what I'm doing. That's really good work, Jesus. That's really good work, Holy Spirit. That's really good work, Horizon Church.